Take your Bibles, turn to me to the book of John. We are in the midst of a series on the signs of Jesus. The, uh, we talked last week that the book of John is divided into two separate sections. You have kind of the signs, uh, the book of signs in the first few chapters, and then around the middle of the book it switches to the week that Jesus is glorified, and we call that the book of glory. So the book of signs the book of glory. And if you remember last week, if you were here, were able to be with us or watched online, we talked about there are seven of these and that it says on there that the purpose of these signs, the purpose of them is that we might believe. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that phrase, that understanding of what belief is in just a moment. All right. Uh, I was reading an article this week about how much parents will do for their kids. And how much parents will attempt to find something that helps their children when they are in trouble. I was reading about a guy named John Crawley. Not a member of Downton Abbey as far as I know. Some of you were thinking, and I know, all right. So I was reading about John Crawley who was... uh, a guy that worked in investment firms, he had a, a law degree, and he had two children named Megan and Patrick, that this has been 20 or so years ago, were diagnosed with a rare neuromuscular disease called Pompe disease. It was considered a death sentence. They didn't have any kind of real uh, treatment, didn't have any cure, didn't have any way that they were able to, to make the lives of the children more comfortable. And so he did what he thought was the only reasonable thing to do. He quit his job and pursued a cure for his kids. In the Wall Street Journal, uh, Gita Arnon writes that seeking treatment, Mr. Crowley quit his job as a financial consultant, met with legions of scientists, and found one that offered some hope, and he borrowed $100,000 on his home and 401k plan to start a biotech company. Went out and began to raise money, and he raised $27 million in venture capital. The company, in the midst of it, developed an ensign that showed some promise, and he knew that his company could not take it over the edge, and so he sought people that were larger that could take what he had done and make it bigger, and he sold his company to one of the largest research companies in America. Now, he did sell it for $137 million, but that company took what they had done. They involved some other researchers. Before this, there were researchers at six universities doing research on the same project that had never communicated anything. He began to have them communicate, and before long, really quite quickly in the development of all of these things, there was a treatment for his kids that saved their lives and improved their quality of life. When asked about it, he said, I would do whatever it takes to see my kids in a better place. Why do I tell that story? Because the story we're going to see today is about a desperate parent doing whatever he could to find a treatment for his kids, or one child in particular. John chapter 4, if you're open there, we're going to be towards the end of the book. John chapter 4, we're going to actually pick up in verse 46. Now, I just want you to know, from where we were last week with Jesus turning water into wine, a lot has happened in between these two things, all right? We're just covering the seven signs as they are um, put in the Scripture, as they're described in the Scripture. In fact, and we're jumping ahead to the very end of this passage, but at the end of this 
verses at the end of this story, John literally says, this is the second sign. All right. And so this was something that we're we're looking at those signs in the New Testament. But just to give you an idea of what's happened, shortly after Jesus turned the water into the wine, he then went to the temple, he turned over tables at the temple, he had a conversation about John the Baptist and what was going on with John the Baptist and what's going on there. In chapter 3, he has this little conversation, side conversation, with a guy named Nicodemus. Anybody know anything that comes out of that? Just the most famous verse in all of Scripture, right? John 3. 16, for God so loved the world, that happens. John chapter 4, he's traveling and he says, we must needs go through Samaria. And on his way through Samaria, as he's going, he stops. There's a woman at the well. They have a full discussion about spiritual uh, realities and worship and what worship looks like. And all of that has happened between the turning the water into wine and where we are now. But this ends a section of scripture that is kind of the opening salvo, the, the, the opening argument of Jesus's ministry. And we know it closes that because it tells us right there at verse 46 at the beginning of this passage, he went again to Cana of Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. And so what it's telling us there is that this is going to be a continuation of what happened there. He's going back to, not the scene of the crime, but back to the first sign and wonder that happened that showed off who he was to the people of that area. Really, just a few people that kind of knew that, the disciples that were overwhelmed. But as Jesus is doing that, that's the first sign. He does this stuff in the middle, and now we come back to this place. And it says at the end of that verse, there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. This royal official, the word that is used for that, meant someone that was a high servant of a king. Now, there, weren't really, there wasn't really a king in those days, especially in this area. And so this isn't somebody from Caesar that's traveled all the way from Rome. He's, from, he's just from down the road in Capernaum. And most people think that this guy was a servant of somebody named Herod Antipas, who was act like a king in that area, even though he wasn't technically one. He would have been a high-ranking official. My guess is that he had begun to hear about this Jesus character, but most assuredly, because of his position, one of the things that he heard was that this man maybe could do things that others could not. Verse 47 tells us that when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Now again... This is a dad who has a son who is ill. There are some things when we talk about Scripture, there are some stories when we talk about Scripture that we have to do lots of kind of bridging the context or building a bridge from their world to our world so that we can understand fully and grasp what's going on and all the intricacies of what their culture and their teachings were like and how that applies to us 2,000 years later. This is not one of those cases. In fact, the words that are used there when it says he pleaded with him, when that word is used pleaded, it is in the present tense in the original language, which means a continual action that goes on and on and on. And it is the word for begging with all that you have. This is a desperate dad who has exhausted every avenue. Now, here I want to tell you real quickly, I do not believe at this moment he has a full realized faith in Jesus. 
This is, it might work. And if it might work, we're going to try it. If it could possibly be something that would help, we're going to give it a go. This is, I have quit my job, not literally, but figuratively, quit my job, started a biotech company, and there is nothing that's promising there. I'm going to go a different avenue and see if something else will happen. I'm going to just look at whatever's there. Because when this guy comes to Jesus, he is at his wit's end, his last resort. This is it. And he is willing to do anything to save his son. I remember growing up. And uh, I was not a kid that got in trouble a lot, but I did get in trouble. I was not in a family that did lots of punishment, but it happened sometimes. Most famously, when I colored all over the living room walls, a beautiful masterpiece of my dad and I fishing, and it did not admit it to them, but described to them all that was happening in the picture, which kind of gave me away. All right? And whenever my parents, on an occasion like that, were about to dole out the punishment, there was a phrase that would often be used. And that phrase was, this is going to hurt me more than it is going to hurt you. And I considered that Baloney. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Now, obviously, they did not mean physically. They meant emotionally. I have four children. They are precious to me. I love every single one of them. And I do understand the emotional turmoil that comes in what my father was describing in that moment. And as a parent, there are very few things in life that can humble you or can floor you more than something happening or being diagnosed or discussed with your kids that you don't have any control, it feels like, over. This man is there. And he just simply says, Maybe Jesus can help. We're going to talk in a moment about this a little bit more because there's there's what comes on the back end of this. But one of the things that I just want to remind us of in this room is sometimes we talk about the fact that the only time we need to go to God is not. Like, like we need to go to God at times other than when we're completely desperate and we've got to have something with the Lord. Like we need a relationship with the Lord, right? Amen. But let me also tell you this. It is perfectly acceptable and right when you're in a desperate situation to go to the Lord. Even if at that particular moment, your faith may not be at the level that you think it ought to be or that your life is not worthy of what you think ought to be. This guy's life was not worthy of asking upon Jesus what he is asking. His faith at this moment is not where it needs to be to ask upon Jesus what he is asking. And yet in that desperation, what I know in Scripture is if he had gone to anybody else in that area, the result would not have been what it is. Because we have one God and one Savior and Jesus was the answer that he needed. 
And you may be in a desperate situation because of the sin in your own life, because of the choices that you have made, maybe not sinful, but just poor decisions. Perhaps it's decisions that are made about you or sins that have done to you, but you may be in a difficult situation. Circumstances have conspired against you and there is desperation in your life. Can I tell you, no matter where you are spiritually with the Lord, there is no place that you can go that is better than going to Jesus. And so this man comes to him. And just like last week, when Jesus gave a curious answer to his mother, y'all remember that, right? The woman, what does that have to do with me? Here, he gives another curious answer. Next verse says this, Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. A couple of things about this. This has context of where we've just come from because just a few verses before this, Jesus says a prophet is of honor only in his own hometown. Like he couldn't do miracles there because they wouldn't believe in him. So he's come out of a place of miracles aren't going to happen. And then he says to them, unless I do signs and wonders. The, The word wonders attached to signs here is a word that is used in other places in the Greek world to reference miracles or supernatural events. It's only used in the book of John here and it does not have a good connotation. He's saying... You want me to do miracles for the sake of miracles so that you can see how powerful and glorious I am and not do miracles that have the point of showing you who God is in me. The second thing that you need to understand is this is a place where we need, and he kind of does this in this translation because in the original language it's kind of you unless you see signs and wonders, but this is where we need the southern version of the Bible, right? Because this is not you singular, this is y'all. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, you people. That's how they translate it because I guess they didn't want to be too southern at the at Lifeway when they did the CSB translation. But unless y'all see signs and wonders, he's saying, you won't believe in me unless I do things above and beyond what I'm called to do. Verse 49, I love just the boldness of this guy. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. A couple of things about this. First of all, it's just kind of interesting. There's a geographic um, important accurate statement here, and that is Capernaum was down from Cana. And so literally saying, come down to Capernaum, come down to here. But the second thing I see here is this this father is like, I don't care about the politics of what's going on around here or the religious stuff that's happening. My boy's about to die. I need you. Verse 50. Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. He asked them, at what time did he get better? And they said, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. So here's the point that's made in this passage. 
Anytime that you, anytime that you look at a passage of Scripture, there's some, some questions you can ask of every passage of Scripture. When you're reading it, and you're reading it at home, you're reading the Bible, certain questions that you can ask of every passage, and there ought to be some answers to, or you ought to be able to find something. And the first one is, what does this passage teach me about God? The first thing we see in this passage is that when Jesus turned water into wine, that was a very localized moment that would, would have been considered by some as kind of a magical kind of thing, turning water into wine. What we have here is Jesus is demonstrating far greater power. It is ramping up the powers that are happening in his life. From miracle to miracle to miracle, things are getting more intense and more powerful from the perspective of Jesus. And this one is a powerful miracle that literally saves a child that's on his deathbed and he does it from a distance. Now it's not... The only time in Scripture that he does something from a distance, you have the centurion's faith where he heals from a distance. In fact, Jesus is going to go at that time. Centurion says, if you just speak the words, it'll happen. And Jesus heals. And we've talked about the fact that distance has no determination on the effectiveness of Jesus. And so this second sign is literally showing that Jesus has power over sickness and that he doesn't even have to be present for it to happen. Showing us that Jesus is the glorious Son of God who has healing in His words. So that's the first question you can ask a pastor of Scripture. What, what is this teaching us about God? And you ask, what does it teach about us? Or what we ought to do with it? And just like last week, there's only one point for this message. And it's an understanding that we need to have about what real faith is. Real faith involves committed belief. So here's the thing about this particular passage of Scripture. Is it shows us a glimpse of what real faith is. If you remember last week we talked about at the end of his book, John says that the reason that he wrote about these signs, that the reason that he wrote all of these words was so that you might, what? Believe. Now we have taken that word believe and we have made it into something that is intellectual hope or trust. Like, Do you believe in Do you believe in me? Do you believe in this? Do you believe in this particular political stance? Do you believe? The question we're asking there is, do you mentally feel like that is an appropriate thing to put your trust in? But for John, in the book of John, when he writes this book, it is something much deeper and more than that. Belief is committed Trust and obedience. It is understanding who Jesus is and then giving your life to follow Him completely. It is not just mental assent. It's not just a mental okay. It's not just a yeah, I trust that the Bible's true. I believe, when we said we believe Jesus died and rose again from the grave, it's not just I think that's a historical fact. It is I think it's a historical fact. And I am placing every bit, 100% of my life on the fact that it is true. 
And so for this man, when he comes to Jesus, like I said, I don't think that he has this real faith at the beginning. It's literally, I am desperate. Whatever you can do, Jesus, I want to follow. I want you to do. But the question that comes up is Jesus basically says, will you trust me? Will you believe in me? Will you obey me? There's an important thing that comes right after he says to him, your boy will live. Go. Your son will live. The, the phrase immediately after that in verse 50 is simply this, the man, and from the original language, from the tense that's there and what's happening there, we get this impression that it means immediately the man believed. Well, what did he do with his belief? He went, thank you, Jesus, I appreciate that. It says, no, he believed and he departed. He gave mental things. Jesus, I believe what you're saying is true and I'm about to show you by my obedience to what you've called me to do. He goes down. He sees his son raised. He hears about the time that it is. And then it uses that phrase again. So he believed in verse 53 at the end of verse 53. He himself believed along with his whole household. Suddenly the whole people are trusting and putting their faith in Jesus. Now I have no idea what came of this man in particular, but I believe that word again. That his life was fully committed to the Lord for the rest of his life. You see, the thing about belief that we have to understand is that committed belief means first, yes, we believe the right things in the right ways, but we follow that with the right action because of the life that has been changed. I don't think, by the way, that it's a coincidence that this story happened shortly after the woman at the well. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well? We talked about just the Samaritan woman. Jesus goes, he's there. He's not supposed to be talking to her. They're not supposed to be having interaction because she's a Samaritan woman and he is a Jewish man. Samaritans and Jews didn't interact. Men and women didn't interact. Not in the middle of the day. She's in the middle of the day because she has some things in her life. She's been married a few times. Not exactly what you would call the, the most faithful person to her faith. She gets Jesus in a religious discussion and asks about worship. And do you remember in the midst of that, Jesus says, the day will come and the day is now here when you will worship me how? In spirit and in truth. What he tells her basically in that passage, we've talked about this before, that mindless worship that is only emotional is not worship. So mindless, emotional worship where we are just caught up in the moment and the mood and the musical aspect of what's happening, when we are just in that place, that is not worship. At the same time, lifeless intellectual worship is not worship either. Where we say all the right things, we believe all the right things, but it doesn't impact us at the level of our heart and our soul. And what he's saying to her is that belief in me is something that will radically transform every aspect of your life and will lead to you following me no matter where I lead, no matter what I ask, and you do it with a joy that is before you. And so this man comes to Jesus and says, you just heal my son. He did not think at this moment, I can almost guarantee, he did not think at the outset of this time that he was going to end up dedicating his life to this man that he is asking to heal his son. And yet, when we come in contact with the glory and the goodness of God in that moment, when we understand what God has done for us, we cannot help 
but give our lives to Him. And committed belief means that it is not something that is a flash in the pan or a once upon a time or a here today, gone tomorrow, here today, gone tomorrow. That there is a thread that runs throughout our lives of a committed obedience to Jesus. So that means we're sinless? No, we all mess up. And there are going to be moments in our lives where we fall back or that we make mistakes or that we sin openly before the Lord. And yet, with someone that is a committed believer of Jesus, it's going to feel like you're sinning inside. It's going to have this ramification in your life, and you're going to want to return to your Father as quickly as possible. It's going to be something that you cannot enjoy doing. Because real faith involves committed, long-term belief. And so here's the question that I have for you today as we think about this passage. What kind of faith do you have? Is it a once upon a time faith that hasn't impacted your life at all recently? In fact, you're just here today because this is what people do. They go to church on Sundays and you're going to do that. Is it a once upon a time of faith that you gave up a long time ago and just over the last few weeks you've begun to kind of think about and return to that and what does God mean for my life? Is your faith authentic, real, genuine? Has your life been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And are you obeying what he is calling you to do today? This story is a simple story of a dad who's desperate to find a cure for his son that discovers a cure for his sin. It's not laid out exactly in those terms, but in Scripture, whenever it talks about the way that John describes belief, it means the same kind of belief that you and I are called to, to be born again. And so that's my question. How real is your faith? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response and Julio is going to come and lead with the band as we respond together singing a song that we've already sung. Our goal is the glorification of God above all things, for Christ to be magnified in our lives and in our world. That happens most effectively from a life that has been transformed and is believing in Him today. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, you've never come to that place of belief, I'll be standing down front. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. If you're here today and maybe you've accepted Christ, but there is some area of your life where you haven't been following in obedience, maybe you've never been baptized and you're like, it's time for me to get baptized. I need to do that. I'd love to talk to you about that. If you're here and... Maybe there's something you need to come and pray about, that there's a step of obedience you know needs to happen in your life that has not happened yet, and you need to do that. You need to say, I'm going to give up this, or I'm going to go this direction, or I'm going to pursue that. Maybe today's the day. In just a moment after I pray, I'm just going to ask you to do and respond to whatever the Lord calls you to respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We're thankful for stories like this of the reality that you meet people where they are desperate. That you find people in their desperation and bring relief. And so Lord, we pray that today you would give us 
wisdom in this room. Lord, if there are those here that have not accepted you as their Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. They would understand their need for that, that you make them uncomfortable right now, and not just uncomfortable um, in, in any non-specific way, but you make them uncomfortable with their own salvation and that they need to have that happen. Lord, I pray if there are those here today that need to be baptized in obedience because they've already been saved, Lord, that you would, you would convict them of that and that they would have the courage to step forward. Lord, if there are those that need to get rid of familiar sins or new sins or need to take steps of faith to things that you've called them to do, that today would be the day. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.